Morning again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Krista. Appreciate that. One good morning in the background there. Uh, so this morning we are continuing in our series on the church. Um, and, and just a reminder that this is not our typical practice. Uh, as you know, our typical practice is, is to work through books of the Bible uh, somewhat consecutively. Um, but we thought that at the beginning of the year, and, and having been through uh, the year that we have been through, uh, that it would be good to, to stop and, and take a moment and just remind ourselves who we are and why we do what we do. Why do we do what we do week in and week out uh, as a church? So uh, this morning, um, as has been the case in the past five or six weeks, this is uh, a little bit more instruction and, and teaching than it is uh, just straight preaching. Uh, I, I'm trying to help you understand more fully uh, why we do what we do as a church. So this morning, I, I want to begin with a 21st century curse word. Uh-oh. Uh, that curse word is commitment. Uh, commitment. For many, commitment is a death sentence to be avoided at all costs because it is restricting. It closes one off to other options. It pledges oneself to a particular course. It comes with the burden of responsibility. Uh, We need only look at the increasing reluctance among adult men and women towards marriage to see that as a sort of controlling reality in our society. Uh, many psychologists and social, social scientists have identified a fear of commitment as a root cause. M- maybe I'm describing someone you know, or, or maybe you yourself have struggled at times with a fear of commitment. Uh, a basic search easily turns up characteristics or tendencies of people that have trouble committing in their relationships. Generally, they want to keep things casual. They are afraid to get hurt. They are guarded and suspicious. They are generally overly critical. They're reluctant to make concrete plans. They uh, don't feel emotionally attached They feel trapped by the thought of obligation or responsibility. They avoid conversations about the future. They keep a comfortable distance. They they say or think things like, I want to keep my options open. Or what if I miss out on someone better? This is the inevitable outcome of a worldview that summarily rejects God and his covenantal love, which is a love that means commitment. What's what's more concerning, however, is that sadly, this exact fear of commitment, this exact reluctance to commitment is present in many who confess Christ. There is a a fear of commitment in their relationship to the church, in their relationship to God's people. So far too many professing Christians are content to keep things casual with the church. Some have experienced real hurts and and real hardship and real problems, not to diminish any any of that, 
but their response then is to sort of keep the church at, at, at arm's length. And still others have just adopted a posture towards the church that looks more like selfish consumerism than it does godly commitment. When, when they do attend, uh, their default is to look for things they don't like. They play their cards close to the chest. They, they avoid anything that would lay upon them the burden of responsibility or expectation. As one pastor described them, he said they, they, they are happy to perpetually exist as church avoiders, church attenders, church shoppers, and church hoppers. But, but what I want you to see this morning is that that just will not square with the New Testament picture of the church with a New Testament picture of a Christian. Maybe you've heard someone say before, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Have you ever heard someone say that? I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Statements like that put in stark relief how antithetical this kind of thinking is to the scriptures. Right In 1 John, love for the brothers, that is, love for the church, for God's people, it's not a sign of Christian maturity. It is a baseline sign of conversion, right? Your love for the Lord's assembly, for his congregation, for his church is, is proof positive that you have indeed been saved by him. And a lack for or a lack of love for the church is, is evidence that you were never his to begin with. So look, I, I want you to see how serious this idea of committing in love to God's people is. The, the, the church, of course, is the bride of Christ. Can, can you love a person's husband but hate his wife? It'd be pretty strange if, if I said to one of the husbands here, you know, I don't want to pick on. I don't want to say anyone's name. I, mean, I just like, hey, I love, I love you, but I just love your wife. Or I, or I hate. No, that would be even worse. I love you, but I, but I hate your wife. That would be, that would be bad. That's what happens when you go off script. That's a problem. Um, likewise, right? The 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 church is the body of Christ. Right? Be be also strange if 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 a wife said to her husband, like, I love you, but I hate your body. Right? That, that would be a problem. And, and so it is with us then. Neither can a Christian love Jesus and simultaneously refuse to love his church. And so for the last five weeks, we've been exploring the nature of the church. And, and, and this morning, I, I, I want to set before you something the scriptures commend as essential in the life of a healthy Christian and in the life of a healthy church. Uh, and that is church membership. Church membership, that is a, a formal, conscious commitment to a local body of believers. See, real love, we, 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 we know this, that real love requires and thrives in the context of commitment. So if we're going to be those who love God's people, we must commit to them. There are lots of, of, of different directions I could go this morning. Um, there's, there's lots of different things to talk about. But what I want to focus in on is the what of that commitment. What exactly is it that we commit to in church membership? 
So my aim is not primarily to persuade you that church membership is biblical. Though, of course, I hope by the end of this sermon you will be more persuaded than ever that church membership is indeed biblical. But this isn't just an argument for church membership. Uh, what I want is to, to, to sort of describe for you and enlist you in the work of church membership. Right? In other words, I, I want to elaborate on your job description and responsibility as a church, particularly as it relates to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? A, few, a few weeks ago, I gave you sort of this overarching umbrella description of the church's role. And I said, the church is to be the pillar and buttress of truth. That is, it's, it's the church's duty and privilege to, to hold up and to protect and defend the gospel. So this morning, I want to zero in on how do we actually do that in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In a, in a few weeks, Trevor is going to preach on how we, the church functions in doing that out to the world. The Great Commission, how do we hold up and defend the truth to the world of unbelievers? But what I want to focus on is, how do we actually hold up and defend the, the, the truth of the gospel in one another's lives in the church? So if, if you have uh, your copy of the scriptures with you, you can open up to Matthew 16. Then the, the little sermon, Lisa pointed this out to me, and the little sermon uh, thing that I handed out with all the passages, Matthew 18 is listen. We are going to go to Matthew 18, uh, but we're going to begin here in Matthew 16. So uh, you can open up to Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 20. Let me read for us. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you bless now the preaching of your word? Lord, I pray that you would help us, even as we consider something as sort of structural and, and institutional as church membership, that you would lift Christ up to us. This is, this is your design for the church, that we should lovingly commit to one another as members of a local body. Christ, our head. Lift up the, the, the head of this body, Christ. Exalt him in our midst and work in us a deep love and commitment to one another until we all grow up to the fullness of maturity in Christ. Lord, do this for the sake of your name. Do it by the power of your spirit. May we not trust in, in any strategies or devices of men, but may we trust in your power and your work that you do through your word, by your spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. 
So, so how does the church actually fulfill her role in exalting and defending the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters? The, the Bible's answer to that question is church membership. Uh, let, me, let me give you uh, just this definition that I wrote uh, of church membership. Church membership is a conscious commitment to a local church whereby one submits their own profession of faith in Christ, to the oversight of the church, and likewise pledges to oversee the other members' professions of faith in Christ in that same local church. Let me read it one more time. Church membership is a conscious commitment to a local church whereby one submits their own profession of faith in Christ to the oversight of the church and likewise pledges to oversee the other members' profession of faith in Christ in that same local church. I'm starting with that definition. I hope you see that definition as we go on. But I'm starting with that definition because I want to cut through all the silly, caricatured models of church membership that exist. Right? I want to hone in on what does the Bible say uh, church membership is and what are we called to in church membership. So, so there is a sense in which church membership relates to the form of the church in, in that it makes the church visible. If we want to know who is a part of this local church, we just look at the membership directory. Right? yet, and this is where we're focused this morning, at the same time, there is a component of church membership that coordinates with the church's function. Uh, That is, the church has been given this job of affirming other Christians' professions of faith as well as advancing and protecting the gospel in the lives of those who are joined to this local body. So, So what we see here in this passage is that a role has been given to the church by none other than Jesus Christ himself. A role, a job, a function has been given to the church. And so with that in mind, what I want, what I want you to see as we work through this passage is three things that Jesus, uh, three gifts, if you will, that Jesus gives to the church that she might fulfill this role. So the first thing that Jesus gives to the church is authority. Okay, if you're tracking with me, and where you're taking notes or something, the first thing that Jesus gives to the church, the first thing we see Jesus giving the church in this passage is authority. Every job or task requires the the delegation of authority. And Jesus has given the church a unique authority as his earthly representatives, both in the proclamation and protection of the gospel. So look again with me here at our passage. After asking the disciples sort of like what the word is on the street about who he is, he asks the disciples specifically, but but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The central question of this passage is, who is Jesus? Perhaps the most important question that anyone could ask. Who is Jesus? And after Peter rightly confesses, I want you to see this, after Peter rightly confesses Jesus as the Christ, as the promised Messiah, Jesus joyfully and authoritatively affirms Peter's confession. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right, this, this is a truth that corresponds with heaven. The Father has revealed this to you. This is a true confession 
Peter. You are right. right? In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, Peter, you've got it. That's right. I am the Christ. But look what Jesus says next. Verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One of the key interpretive questions of this passage is, what is the rock that is being referred to here? Some have argued that the rock is Peter, whose name in in Greek, Petros, uh, sounds like the Greek word for rock. And others have argued that the rock is Peter's true confession of Jesus as the Christ. And to both of those interpretations, we have to say, yes, that's right. Jesus is affirming Peter's confession and therefore Peter as a true confessor. In, in other words, Jesus is, is in saying that he's going to build his church upon the rock, he's, he's saying that he is going to build his church with the stones of true confessors beginning with Peter and the apostles. And that's, of course, what we read in Ephesians 2.20, right? We read, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. But now look what Jesus gives to Peter after affirming his confession. Verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That sounds like a big deal. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Right? Jesus isn't giving to Peter any old set of keys. But he's giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now suffice it to say, I, I don't think Jesus is, is giving Peter a literal set of keys. Right? He's giving him a, a symbolic set of keys to convey, to signify a particular authority. Remember, that's our first point. Jesus gives to the church an authority. And that authority is signified in him giving these keys. And keys as a symbol of authority is a metaphor that's not totally lost on us, right? Uh, do you remember when your parents first gave you the keys to the car? It came with, giving you those keys came with a certain authority, right? Uh, authority to operate the car and, and, and in a sense authority to go where you wanted to go in that car. Or, or think of like a janitor, right? They have the, the big ring of keys, right? And that designates a certain authority to go into the various doors that those keys unlock. And someone without those keys doesn't necessarily have the authority to enter through those doors. So, so keys are the symbol of authority. But, but consider also the fact that in both of these illustrations, and as we'll see in this passage, that it's a delegated authority. Right? Peter is not going to have this authority in and of himself. Neither did you, when you were handed the keys to the car or the janitor handed the keys to a particular building, have that authority in and of themselves. It's a delegated authority. Likewise, in our passage, the authority that Peter has is is a delegated authority that he uses as a representative of the kingdom of heaven. The the authority he's been assigned has been assigned to him by by none other than the king. By Christ. It's Jesus who actually gives him these keys. So Peter is to use these keys as a delegate, as an ambassador, as a representative of the kingdom of heaven. Are you tracking with me? This is somewhat of like a a little bit of a technical argument we're going to go along here. So just sort of, you got to engage and just track with me piece by piece here. So Peter's to use these keys as a delegate. And the question we're left with, however, is, is 
what has Peter actually been authorized to do? Like what, what, what authority specifically has Peter been given? So to find out the answer to that question, we need to go on to verse 19, where Jesus describes the use of these keys. Look at verse 19. At verse 19 we read, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, so here we find out what the keys are for. Right? We find that these keys of the kingdom given to Peter are used for binding and loosing. These aren't keys that are used to start a car or open a janitor's closet. They are keys for binding and loosing. So what is that? I mean, it's sort of like, okay, we've got keys, authority, good, binding and loosing. What is that about? I don't know. There are four other places in Matthew's gospel where the same word bind is used, but there's really only one other place where it's used in a, in a similar context. So jump over. If you have your Bible open, you can just jump right over to Matthew 18. Two chapters later, Matthew 18. Listen to these words and listen carefully. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, we read these words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So did you hear it in that passage? That same language. Binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But notice what's being described here, though. We've got three phases where the church confronts a professing brother about unrepentant sin. First an individual, then a small group of two or three, and then eventually the whole gathered assembly. In, in every one of those phases, the goal is to bring the brother's life into unity with his profession of faith. In other words, the church is saying to this person, your life is currently marked by unrepentant sin and does not match your confession as Jesus as the Christ. Right? Lives where uh, we, people that confess Jesus as the Christ will actually demonstrate in, in, in itself in certain ways, in confession, in repentance, in lives of, of holiness. So after that final phase, the, the, the man, if he does not repent, Jesus instructs the church to render a judgment. He instructs the church to render a judgment. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him beat you or regard him or, or, or judge him or consider him a Gentile and a tax collector. That's Jesus' way of saying, consider him as you would an unbeliever. If you call him to repentance and he does not respond, regard him as an unbeliever. As at the, the, this is after the church is gathered. In other words, the church 
can no longer affirm this man's profession of faith. It can no longer regard him as a believer. It can no longer in good conscience consider him to be a faithful representative of the kingdom because his life does not show the fruits of saving faith. And then immediately after Jesus' instruction to the church to render a judgment about this man, he he repeats, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's going on here? What, 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 What we have is an example of the church using the keys to loose someone from the kingdom. That's what you see here. The binding and loosing refers directly to Jesus' instructions to the church to render a judgment about this man. So, so binding, if we're just going to put it all together, binding, using the keys to bind, positively refers to the church's formal act of recognizing or judging someone's confession of faith as true and credible. That's what binding is. Loosing, on the other other hand, refers to the church's formal act of judging someone's confession of faith as false or lacking credibility. That's what binding and loosing is. It's two sides of the same coin. The church recognizing a true confessor or the church denying a false confessor. Now, before we move on, I want you to see explicitly that this kingdom authority has been given to the church. Right? In Matthew 16, we see Jesus giving the keys to who? He gives the keys to Peter. But then we see in Matthew 18 that the church is exercising those keys. So I take it then that the same authority that was given to Jesus, or that was given by Jesus directly to Peter, was by extension given to the apostles and ultimately to the church. Matthew 18 tells us it's the gathered assembly of God's people that Jesus has endowed with the authority to bind and loose, to affirm and to deny, to recognize and identify true gospel confessors and false ones. Now, let me me be clear here. The, the, The church has not been given the authority by Jesus to make people Christians. Okay, the church has authority to affirm and recognize. This is where Roman Catholicism gets it wrong, by the way, among many other areas. Uh, the, the, the church is not mediating God's grace through sacrament. What the church is doing is recognizing and affirming true confessions of faith. The, the church cannot make someone a Christian, a Christian or unmake someone as a Christian, but but Jesus has authoritatively given the church the responsibility and the authority to recognize and affirm those who have truly put their faith in Christ. And as a caveat, the church will do this imperfectly because we are flawed. But, but the ideal is that the church, when it's gathered, has the very authority of Christ to recognize and affirm true believers. So just as Jesus authoritatively and joyfully affirmed Peter's confession, that's what Jesus, Jesus gives us the model, right? Jesus affirms Peter's confession of faith. Yes, that's right, Peter. I am the Christ. And then by the way, later on, he's going he's gonna to 
rebuke Jesus or, or, or Peter's confession when uh, he, he misunderstands that the Messiah is one who will suffer. And he says, get behind me, Satan. So you almost see two sides of that same coin there. Uh, an illustration that I'm, I'm confident that many of you have heard, but I, but I think it's really helpful and is biblical, is, is the idea of the church as, as an embassy. Um, so in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we read, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Right? If we are ambassadors for Christ, then there is this sense in which the church fulfills this role as, as an embassy, as a representative body on behalf of a, a kingdom government, the kingdom of heaven. So in, the very, in a very real sense, the church is to function as a kingdom embassy in a foreign land. So, so consider this, right? If you were in a foreign land and you lost your passport, what you would do is, is you would go to the American embassy. And the embassy there, would you, would you would fill out a little application to get a new passport and they would do some digging and, 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 and look into your background and find your name and, and all that stuff. And they would be able to recognize that you are indeed an American citizen and then they would issue you a new passport. Right? Now, now see, the embassy does not make you an American citizen. Right? Whether you have your passport or not, you are an American citizen. And yet the embassy has been given a unique authority by the government of the United States to actually formally recognize you as a citizen and issue you a passport. That's what the church does for Christians. That's the authority that's been given by Jesus to the church with Christians. So in the same way, the local church functions as an embassy for heaven in a foreign land where citizens can be formally recognized as such so that they may enjoy all the earthly benefits of citizenship in the kingdom of God. In the same way that an earthly embassy has the very authority of its government and to step into that embassy is to step on the soil of that country, so a church has the very authority of Christ. That's, that's, the, that's what you see in, in Matthew 18, 19 and 20 there, right? He says, uh, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Christ is saying, my authority is uniquely present in the gathered assembly in a way that it's not present in just the life of an individual. Do you see that? Right? The, the, the gathered church bears a unique authority given to her by Christ wherein Jesus is present. And in that authority, the church uh, is equipped to render judgments about true confessors and false confessors. I wonder if you see the force behind Jesus' authorization of the church. It's that he is there among them. And so the church acts with the very authority of Christ. That authority then means responsibility. Have you ever heard this quote, with, with great power comes great responsibility? So that's, a, that's a, a quote first attributed to a French diplomat during the French Revolution, then to Winston Churchill, and then maybe most recognizably where, I don't know, the kids aren't here. Yeah, yes, there it is. Spider-Man, right? And Uncle Ben and Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. I can rely on Mark Horner for a good uh, Marvel Comics uh, quote. Okay. So uh, it, but this is a quote that actually has its origins in the scriptures, by the way. And it's in a different form. But, but Luke 12, right? Uh, we read this, 1248. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. 
And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The point is that the highest of authorities has been given by Jesus to the church. That is, in in recognizing and uh, affirming people's professions of faith. So in other words, because the church has this God-given authority to recognize and affirm true confessors of Christ, the church then necessarily bears the God-given responsibility to actually do that. You see that, right? We have the authority to recognize true confessors, and so we therefore have the responsibility to actually do that. Verse 19, again, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I, I don't think Jesus' words to Peter here are purely hypothetical. You know, I don't think that they're like, you know, like a, a thought experiment. It seems like Jesus is actually expecting Peter and the apostles, and by extension, the church, to use these keys to bind and loose. So, so how does the church do that? How does the church actually bind and loose? Well, the answer is through church membership. And again, I, you know, when I say church membership, I am aware of the fact that there are lots of bad models of what church membership is. But most essentially, what we see in the scriptures is that church membership at its core is about a gathered assembly recognizing true Christians and affirming their profession of faith, and being unwilling to affirm the profession of faith of false confessors, or those who do not demonstrate a life that has actually been changed by the gospel. I, you know, I wonder to myself, how do churches, and this is, I'm not trying, trying to be semantic or uh, antagonistic, but I do wonder, how do churches uh, that, that don't practice any real type of formal church membership see themselves as being faithful to this call to to use the keys, to exercise the keys of the kingdom, to bind and loose. What does binding and loosing look like outside of uh, formal membership? That's what formal membership is, right? Recognizing and affirming a true confessors. So, so for the church to bind is to put its official seal of kingdom recognition upon a person by conferring upon them membership in the church. And likewise, to loose is for the church to refuse to put its official seal of kingdom recognition, whereas in the case of Matthew 18, to remove that seal through the process of church discipline. So I think there are two responsibilities that that flow from this authority that we've spoken of uh, for every Christian. Two responsibilities. The, the, The first responsibility is just to be a member. So every Christian has the responsibility to, to, to be a member in a church. Last week I said that the, the New Testament doesn't really, no, this will be two weeks ago now. Uh, two weeks ago I said that the, the, the New Testament doesn't have a category for Christians that don't regularly assemble with God's people. And likewise I want to say that the New Testament really does not have a category for Christians that are not members in a local church. The, the, the authors of the New Testament, they, they simply expect that Christians will be members in a local body. For starters, when Jesus says in Matthew 18 that if a man caught in sin refuses to listen to the two or the three, that it should be taken to the church, that assumes that there is a concrete, knowable, identifiable group of people called the church. Right? When he says take it to the church, 
Jesus understands there to be a concrete, identifiable, knowable group of people known as the church. Right? The call to take it to the church is not to air someone's dirty laundry to anyone that has shown up to a church service. No, it's, it's to take it to a defined group of people called the church. Or consider the passage that we examined last week in Acts 2. Acts 2.41, we read, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You notice Luke says that those who believe, to the gospel, believe the gospel were baptized, and they were added that day. Well, they were added to what? They were added to the number of those in the church in Jerusalem. They were added to the, to the membership role, if you want to think about it in those terms, to the, in the church in Jerusalem. Later on in Acts 6, uh, when a dispute arose between the Jews and the Hellenists, we read the apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. So apparently for the apostles, they had a category for all of those, concretely and definitely, who belonged to the church. Right? They, they summoned the full number of the disciples. So again, there is the assumption of an accountable and identifiable church. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, we actually find the language of membership. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13, we, we read, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, now commentators rightly point out that here, Paul is most likely talking about membership in the universal church, in the invisible church. In the, 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 the invisible church, which is all Christians throughout all time, everywhere. And, and yet, we look at Paul's words as he goes on in that same chapter, verse 25, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, we read that, that God has composed the body so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So Paul moves from talking about the invisible church to talking about the visible church, the local body. Surely what Paul has in mind here is members of a local body suffering and rejoicing together. In 1 Peter 5, we read that leaders are called to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. Well, who is that flock? How are the leaders to know who is a part of that flock? They are the members. So all that is, there's more that could be said there. Uh, And again, as I said in the beginning, this is not primarily about proving that church membership is biblical. But if you have more questions about that, I'd be happy to talk with you. But all that is to demonstrate the New Testament expectation that every Christian will commit to a local church in membership. I also think it's valuable to say at this point that there is just tremendous blessing in church membership. Tremendous comfort and safety. Right, Christians that would sort of understand their own uh, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven on their own authority is out of step with the New Testament. Right? There is a great measure of assurance that comes when a body of believers who knows you looks into your life and says, you have believed rightly who Jesus is as the Christ and your life demonstrates, a lot of times even when you can't see it, Your life demonstrates a faith that is alive. So there's a tremendous amount of assurance. The bedrock of our assurance is Christ and him crucified. 
And yet God has given to us this blessing in church membership that we would have a group of Christians around us saying, yeah, we can see the gospel alive in your heart. So on those days when you are like, man, what is even happening? What is going on in my life? I feel like, you know, maybe I'm just a, a, a big giant fraud. To have other people in your life who say, no, 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 we, we know you. And we, sure, there's areas of struggle and, and we can see uh, th- there's areas of sin. And yet we also see a faith that is alive in you. There's tremendous blessing in church membership. right? This isn't just about the institutional goal to keep the, the, the membership roles right. This is about spiritual blessing that God gives to his people in knowing their membership, their union with Christ's body in the church. So the first responsibility then is to just be members in the church. The second then is that Christians in, in committing to membership are committing themselves to oversee your brother's and sister's profession of faith. And this gets that idea of what is the job? What's the role? What's the task that has been given uh, to the church? And what, 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 we, what we commit ourselves to in church membership is recognizing one another's common confession. We see in one another, yep, you believe in the same Jesus I believe. Right? You believe in, in the, the, the Jesus who was sent down by his Father, incarnated, who took on flesh to bear the sins of his people, to f- perfectly fulfill the law, to die in our place, to rise again victorious from the grave, to, to indwell his people by his Holy Spirit, to raise them to new life, to, to, to be joined to him uh, by faith. Yep, that's the Jesus I believe in. And then to see that confession fully formed more and more and more as we would together and one another, uh, alongside one another, grow in our faith and mature in our faith. That's a responsibility that finally belongs to the church. But it's it's a responsibility that begins with each individual member. You, You remember in Matthew 18 that it begins with an individual going to another brother to confront them about sin. That, you realize that's an act of church discipline. We, we tend to think about church discipline in, the, in, in its final stage. right? Church discipline is when you know, a, a brother or a sister has refused to repent and so they're excommunicated out of the church. But really, church discipline should be happening all the time in the church. right? Church discipline is when one brother goes to another brother and says, hey, I see this area of sin. And then that brother says, yep, you're right. Repentance minister the gospel, encouragement, that's church discipline. That's church discipline doing what church discipline does, right? Preserving, guiding, keeping, helping another brother, another sister mature in their faith, recognizing sin in their own life, and then ministering the gospel and helping them to see Christ in it and grow. So we, so we each bear a, a responsibility uh, to, to, to engage in this work of, again, holding up the gospel and defending the gospel in one another's lives. And the structure of that commitment is church membership. I wonder if at this point, if, if you see how this kind of commitment rubs up against the world's idea of love. We, we talked about that a little bit a few weeks ago. But love, we are told, only affirms people no matter the choices they make. And you remember how I said this is sort of like a Rubik's Cube and just spinning it and there's all kinds of overlap? He, this is a major just overlap here, right? 
love the way the scriptures speak of it is not a love that just is willing to tolerate sin in, in, in everyone's lives or to just tolerate what, whatever the people around you, your brothers and sisters around you think is, is right for them. No, it's, it's, it's actually to, to insist lovingly and graciously and gently and humbly that Christ be formed in them. That they grow and mature in their faith. In fact, you know, you think about Hebrews 12, right? One of the great evidences that, that you have in your life that God loves you is that he disciplines you. Right? The, the, the author of Hebrews says, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. He's treating you as sons. Discipline is actually an evidence of love. And so it is with one another. How do we love one another? We actually commit together. We commit to one another to see Christ formed in each other. To hold one another accountable. To, to insist that we mature and grow up together in the faith. In love, the church joyfully affirms true confessors and labors alongside them to see that confession fully formed in their lives and to, to see them continually mature in their faith. And yes, it is in love that a church tearfully and yet sternly revokes someone's membership in the church and bars them from the communion table. First, because of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember the passage we read in Leviticus? Right, God throughout redemptive history has always been concerned to draw clear lines around his people. These are my people and my people are holy. Right, He says to his people, I am the Lord your God is holy, therefore you are to be holy. And what happens when they, are, when they dabble in unclean things? He says in that passage that they're to be cut off. Why? Because God is concerned to draw clear lines around his people. This is what the redemptive community of faith, this is what the saints look like, this group of people. And so it is in the church. We, we, we are concerned to see Christ formed in one another first because of our love for Christ and our desire to lift up the gospel. This is one of the big problems in churches that, that don't insist on church membership is you have people bearing the name of Christ officially, by the church, members in the church, and yet their lives speak nothing of the gospel. In fact, their lives speak the exact opposite. Right? They, they, they speak poorly of the power and the goodness of the gospel to actually change people's lives. And so there is a, there is a deep concern and a love for Christ in church membership. That is, we want to make sure collectively that Christ is being exalted in one another's lives. And we, ins and we insist on it lovingly. Not per we're not in and again, we're not insisting on perfection. We're not ins insisting that everyone have perfectly moral lives. We recognize that we are sinners on the road to glory and in need of sanctification. And yet, to lift up the glory of the gospel is, in is to insist that the gospel is real. And, and it changes the way that people live. So it's first a love for God, but it's also a love for one another. Right? Why is it that we you know, involve ourselves in one another's lives? Because we love one another. Because we love the Lord and we love one another and we want to see Christ formed. We, we, we want to see one another letting go of the, the lies and the false promises that sin officers, that offers to find their true and, and, and lasting joy in Christ. And we love, even in church discipline, in hopes that the Lord would use it 
to bring wayward brothers to repentance. And what I want you to see is that this requires a love that is committed. This isn't just sort of like a haphazard, you know, non-committal, casual kind of love. It is to say to a group of people, it is me saying to you, and it is you saying to one another, I know how fickle my heart is. I know how weak I am. I, I know how needy I am. And I also recognize that one of the main means that God has given to preserve and keep his people and to help them pro- progress in the faith and grow in the faith is other brothers, sis- brothers and sisters in the faith. And so I give total and complete permission to those other brothers and sisters in the body to speak into my life, to see my life, to see my Strengths, but to also see my weaknesses, to see areas where the Lord has gifted me, but to also to see all my, my wrinkles and, and the areas where I struggle so that, so that the Lord would, would use the people in his body to build up, that we would together build one another up. It's a, be- it's a beautiful design, isn't it? It's so wonderful. It's, it's, it's an amazing, incredible design that the Lord would use us as the main means to build one another up in faith. Okay, I'm going long here. So Jesus gives to the church an authority and a responsibility. And finally, we see in this passage that he gives the church a promise. Just real quick, let me finish out by holding out to you the promise that Jesus gives. I wonder if at this point you're thinking to yourself, this is literally the worst church growth strategy I've ever heard of in my life. This sounds so exclusive and so cliquish. The church will never grow with this kind of emphasis on membership. Who, who would want to sign up to be this involved in other people's lives? D- listen, let me, let me just be upfront with you. Right? Church membership means you're going to get in the mess. Church membership is you're going to have to take off your mask. Everyone else is going to have to take off their mask, and you're going to see people's mess. You're going to see their sin. You're going to see their struggles. But you're also going to see the way that they grow. You can see the way that the Lord uses you and other people around you to sanctify them and grow them up in the faith by his grace. But it is messy. So who wants to sign up to be that involved in other people's mess? Who wants to come to a church that takes membership this seriously? But but that's the very question question that brings us back uh, to Matthew chapter 16. Look in verse 18. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the promise that grounds the authorization of Peter, and by extension the church, to exercise the keys of the kingdom, to bind and loose in church membership, to do these things that we've been talking about, is the very reality that Jesus has promised to build his church. You see what I'm saying? Right, The very authority and responsibility Jesus gives is built on, is grounded on this promise that Jesus is going to build his church. Not even the very gates of hell will prove to be a formidable obstacle to Christ's pledge to build his church. And here is where the church must rest confidently in Christ alone. Will the church begin to trust in man-made treasure? You see, for so many churches, and, and we are consciously trying to fight against this, that the bar of membership has been so lowered. Now, we don't want to make the bar of membership too high either. That, that can be a real concern. But the bar of membership has been so low, right, that it's not actually really concerned 
about whether or not you are confessing truly the Christ of the scriptures and whether or not your confession has been a real, has become a real controlling reality in your life. But, but Christ actually gives the keys of the kingdom so that the church would be built, both in number and maturity. The, the watchword of our day, of course, and, and, and unfortunately this is true in the, in the church too, is inclusivity and acceptance. And yet, yet Jesus, after promising to build his church, gives Peter, and, and by extension the church, the task of drawing clear lines. This is, these are who are identified with the kingdom of heaven, and these are who are not. Right, so the, the church draws clear lines by joyfully admitting true confessors and by withholding membership from those who either are not confessing a true Christ or whose lives do not demonstrate a living faith in that Christ. Brothers and sisters, church membership is God's discipleship plan. Church membership is God's discipleship plan. How will how will Christians individually grow up in their faith? That's what it means to be discipled, right? When, when Trevor talks about the Great Commission, and the, the, the call to, to go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, what does it mean to actually grow up as disciples? It means to grow up, to grow in your obedience to Jesus in obeying his commands. How will that happen in the life of the church? as individual members commit to one another to seeing Christ formed in their brothers and sisters. <clears throat> listen to these words from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And listen specifically for how Paul uses, again, the imagery of the body and its members. Ephesians 4.11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what we're talking here about, by the way. This is, this is me, uh, by God's grace, trying to equip you for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, rather, speaking the truth in love. Who are we speaking the truth in love to? To one another. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is church membership. That's what church membership is all about. Right there. Ephesians 4. Why has the Lord given these specific offices and gifts to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry? What is that work of ministry? It is precisely your devotion and commitment to one another to oversee each other's professions of faith, to build one one another up to maturity in Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith. Do you hear that language of mutual responsibility? It's in this responsibility. It's in exercising the keys of the kingdom. It's in committing to one another in church membership, precisely in committing to one another in church membership, that Jesus promises to build his church. That's that's how Jesus promises to do it. 
He is the head of the body. And ultimately, he is the source of his body's growth in him. And so it's Christ's work in and amongst the the church that ensures the maturity and the growth of his people. And as I've referenced a couple of times, it's it's, it's, it's precisely Jesus' promise to build his church in, in number until all his sheep are gathered in that grounds our practice of church membership. So that idea that Jesus is going to build his church is twofold. He's going to build his church in maturing one another up, maturing his people up in faith, but also in actually gathering in the full number of his flock. That's how he will do it. And Trevor's going to touch on that more uh, in uh, a few weeks when we get to the Great Commission. So I won't say much here. Other than that, a, a strong commitment to church membership requires a rock-solid understanding of conversion. A scriptural, a biblical understanding of conversion. And when you have a biblical understanding of conversion and you understand that it is precisely the power of the gospel to convert people, all the more we are compelled. All the more we are pushed forward to be bold proclaimers of the gospel, that God would indeed work through the proclamation of his gospel, to bring in the full number of his sheep. And so as the, as the church, we, we are called to stand on Christ's promises, to receive the authority his, he's given us, to take up the responsibility of using those keys to bind and to loose, to joyfully affirm true confessors, uh, to, to tearfully uh, and, and um, even slowly, I would say, uh, remove false confessor, confessors, uh, to deny admission to membership to those who are not truly confessing Christ uh, as the Bible has him, uh, but ultimately to do all of this for the glory of God and for the exaltation of Christ in the world. And so Jesus has given to his church the, the great privilege of being joined to his body in membership to each individual Christian. He, he's, he's also given to his people authority and responsibility and the promise that he will unfailingly build his church. So this morning, um, as, as we've considered my, my call to you, my uh, charge to you is to trust Jesus to do what he promises he will do through the means that he has promised to do it. So let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you that you have made us members in your own body. Uh, We thank you for Christ, the head of the church, that you have joined us to yourself, not through anything that we have done, but through your blood, even as we read earlier, that you have made peace by the blood of your cross. Lord, I pray that you would Enable us to to love one another as you have loved us, to commit to one another. Your love is a covenantal, committed love. You you laid down your life, Jesus, that we should know you and be counted amongst your people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, that they would grow all the more in their faith and in their relationship with you. Strengthen us to this end by your spirit and for the sake of your name, we pray. Amen.